This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. The early flowering bulbs are gone now, but the spring flowers are blooming. I found one lone English bluebell that bloomed from a batch of bulbs I planted year before last. I will try again this fall with more. I've been encouraged by the success of my Virginia Spring Beauties, a native plant that blooms profusely in the early spring. I planted some corms a couple of years ago and have also transplanted some plants that I liberated from some street medians. The goal is to have the Spring Beauties bloom throughout the yard. I am learning that requires both persistence and patience. I discovered a couple of weeks ago that my podcast interview recording service has changed its free option, which I have used throughout the life of this podcast. I must now find a suitable paid alternative, which also may give me more flexibility. However, it will actually cost more money to operate the podcast. Perhaps you might consider supporting the podcast financially through Patreon at patreon.com slash culturaldebris link in show notes. Any amount is most appreciated, and Cultural Debris could use your help now more than ever. Our poem comes from Kentucky's own Wendell Berry. For the future. Planting trees early in spring, we make a place for birds to sing in time to come. How do we know? They are singing here now. There is no other guarantee that singing will ever be. My guest is His Imperial and Royal Highness, His Excellency Edward Habsburg. He is Archduke of Austria and Ambassador of Hungary to the Holy See and the Sovereign Order of Malta. He is also a member of perhaps Europe's most famous family. Plus, he is the author of a new book from Sophia Institute Press titled The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. The ambassador and I discussed the value of everything from getting married to subsidiarity and dying well. Throughout, we discussed stories from his famous family and the importance of faith, as well as what makes monarchy different. Please join me as I talk with Ambassador Edward Habsburg. Ambassador Edward Habsburg, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, it is indeed an honor uh, to have you on, and you are the author of a new book called The Habsburg Way. Yes, I am. I am. And I'm, call I'm talking to you from Rome, from my office. We have a wonderful, warm spring afternoon in Rome. Well, it is a wonderful spring afternoon, well, morning, I guess, wonderful spring morning in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. The flowers are blooming and uh, the horses are racing. So uh, I, I don't know which of us have the better of it because Rome is, would certainly be beautiful right now. It is absolutely magnificent. And as you asked about my book, just today I got the famous letter from the customs where they tell me to explain exactly what's in the box. Um, that is my copies of the book. I'm one of the few people who hasn't had a copy of his book in his hand. All sort of, of my Twitter followers 
have already had it and posted pictures. Uh, well, oh, I, I have oh, one right here. Yes, I, I, I was oh, able to get one. So, uh, yes. so mine are stuck so, in customs. Mine are stuck in customs. So, well, far. it is it is a beautiful volume and uh, well produced and a, a nice hardcover. So yeah. it is uh, it is certainly recommended for people to pick up. They will they will not be disappointed. I don't think. I certainly hope so. I wrote it with America in mind. Um, I like the United States very much from my visits, from my appreciation of American culture, of American history. Um, and, uh, and I wrote this thinking, you know, it's very interesting. There seems to be a lot of enthusiasm for the Habsburgs on the American continent. Uh, this is quite surprising because America was never a monarchy. Oh, but perhaps that's the explanation. Uh, you are able to simply dream about the positive sides of monarchy. <laughs> well, that, may be, that may be the case. I don't know. On the <laughs> other hand, on the other hand, America was built on the myth of fighting tyrants and kings. So it's interesting to speak to Americans about the Habsburgs. Well, you actually mentioned in your book a, a Habsburg uh, connection to America. That there were uh, there were Habsburg holdings, I suppose, in the very early days. Um, so 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 maybe there were possibilities there that never were were explored. Yes, in my family we have the um, we have the habit of referring to Florida, Texas, and New Mexico as old Habsburg lands. In fact, <laughs> the first governor of Texas was put there by the Spanish Habsburgs. Um, there are, there are other connections. I think some of our ideas, of some ideas of the Habsburg Empire and of the United States are surprisingly close. You wouldn't say so. Uh, that's what I found out while I was writing the book. Um, so I think it can be an interesting read for, for readers in the United States and not only for Catholic readers, I think. Well, that actually anticipates one of my questions, which was, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, a book from a long uh, royal dynasty, imperial dynasty. What is it that an American in the 21st century can gain from, from that kind of insight? First of all, I think uh, you will get to know a very nice family. The Habsburgs were not famous for slaughter, massacre, uh, copious wars and intrigues and backstabbing. We're, we're a family that ruled mostly through marriage, alliances and diplomacy. Uh, that is in itself something nice. Um, the, the, other, the other central point of my book is, is really to present the core values of our family, the, what I call seven rules for turbulent times, and I think most people Nowadays, we'll agree that we live in turbulent times, uh, but don't we always? Um, and I, my, my theory is that anybody can follow these seven rules. You don't have to be either living in a monarchy or being an emperor yourself um, to follow these rules. So by watching closely um, how, for instance, um, Emperor Charles V speaks to his son about uh, subsidiarity, uh, how how blessed Carol fights for peace in his times, in a time of war. This is all things that we can do in our lives. We can follow these rules, we can implement them into our lives. 
And my central aim of this book is to, to begin a discussion to say, wouldn't our lives, wouldn't our society, wouldn't our political world be better if some of these Habsburg values would be lived by more people? Well, the, the list uh, that you give us, and of course, we won't have time to go over all of those in this interview, but I do want to touch on some of them. But they're all, uh, I guess, they're all principles that each of us really can look to as something that we can that we can implement in our lives that we we are i guess in in a sense ruling uh, our own little our own little kingdoms of our lives right and so we can we can find some uh, some insight from that yes yes i mean some of those seven points are of course very close to my own life i am if i go through them get married and have lots of children is the first one and i i i really underline the word lots I don't think that two children really counts as children. You have, it begins with three. Um, why? Because you, as parents, learn all that you need to learn, and they, as children, learn all that they need to learn in, in, a, in a numerous family. It's, it's just the most wonderful thing in the world, and it is the building block of a good society, in my opinion. And I am married, I have six children, and I, I say in my book, and I repeat this very often, you learn every value of democracy around the dinner table. Um, you learn to look after the weaker members of society. In our family, we always serve the youngest first, even if the eldest are probably the hungriest and can most dramatically yell for food, we always serve the youngest first. If, if everybody, you know, I have five daughters and one son, so you can imagine that the dinners were lively and everybody was speaking at the same time at full, uh, full sound and um, sometimes the younger ones try to get through and then they will cry because they won't get through so the elder ones learn that you have to give the the weaker a voice the younger ones learn from the elder siblings um, there is a real discourse this is a place where um, where you are really among yourself you can share values without school state or internet interfering uh, around the table at least so that's what i'm saying is Family is a place where you learn all the core values that you need to build a sane and good state. Well, you do start off with married and have have a lot of children. And I don't know that in 2023 that there is more countercultural advice than to do that because it seems to be the exact opposite direction from what from what uh, society, both in Europe, certainly in North America, is trending towards. Yes, it is. But once you experience it and once other people, for instance, visit you and, and, and realize what it is to have many children, it's, it's full of sacrifices, of course. I mean, you can say goodbye to, um, to, if you have six children and you go to the cinema in eight and everybody buys popcorn and tickets, um, that, that's more or less like an expensive flight somewhere. Um, yeah. But the great thing is, if you have a big family, you are far more immune to consumism, um, to advertising, to the latest fads, to the latest fads. And as I said, you have a safe space. Uh, most people are lonely. They sit in front of a screen and, and all the latest ideas rush through their head, get wiped away by the next latest fad. And around the family table, you have your own safe space where you can work on your ideas, where you can really talk about what you believe in. 
So that's what the Habsburgs did. I mean, what they also did is they married their children off. I don't have that luxury. Unfortunately, our next generation <laughs> believe that they have a right and a say in their romantic entanglements. Um, but it's, it's, it's really, it's a great thing to have lots of children. Well, you, you have twice as many as I do, but I have all girls. So I do know, I do know what it's like, um, to try to manage, uh, daughters and, uh, I'm still learning how to, how to do that. <laughs> it's fathers are incredibly important for daughters. And I really, I can tell, and it's a gift. I don't know how old yours are. But mine are from 14, no, from 15 to 26 now. It gets more and more wonderful every day for the father, mostly. Well, mine are in the same age range. My uh, youngest is 17. My oldest is 23. So, okay. Uh, so we speak about the same. Right. Absolutely. So as we're looking at Europe and, the, and America, the West, we'll, we'll say broadly, uh, turning away from marriage and children how how do we reverse that what what's the cause of it and and what are we able to do to try to to get to get people to follow your advice the habsburg advice here i think mm, we get directly to my second point of the seven rules which is be catholic and practice your faith i think without faith and it doesn't have to be catholic can be any other um, religious faith that you practice. Um, without faith, marriage doesn't work. We are different. Men and women are different. We have different sexes, different biographies, different interests. Even if today's society is trying to tell us that it's all the same and there is no difference at all. Um, everything is pulling us apart. Society is pulling us apart. Money is pulling us apart. Consumism is pulling us apart. Um, if you don't have faith in common, I don't even know how people do it who don't have faith. Um, or something similar, I don't know. Um, to have a core in your marriage, to put God in the middle, is a recipe to stay together. Family that prays together stays together, said um, Mother Teresa always. And I think that's a very good advice. The Habsburgs were that nice family that they are with that wonderful network of relations through all of Europe because they were Catholic. And uh, I believe that, the, the <coughs> for instance, my government, Hungary, we try to encourage families to get married, to have children, to have numerous children. We do this by, by um, financial aid, by um, grants, that you don't have to repay after a certain number of children by financial aid for grandparents who want to help the, their children with their children. Uh, grant, you know, we pay half of a seven-seater car that you will buy, uh, yeah. things like that. But that's not enough. You also need a, you also need a society that tells you um, on posters, in the daily life of our political leaders, in films, that having many children is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because if you don't ever see that around you, if having a, a numerous family is a private hobby, like, you know, uh, collecting bonsai trees, um, then you, why would you do this madness? And why would you not rather have two cars than five children? Um, so 
you need faith and you need a state that encourages you to go that way because in the end this this will pay back hundredfold this will pay back hundredfold one of the one of the things of course that you include throughout your book are uh, stories from your family's history that illustrate uh, many of these uh, many of these stories and of course the or uh, many of these principles the the story that that stuck out to me uh, and of course you is clearly a favorite of yours too is Maximilian and Mary uh, oh. uh, in your marriage in your marriage uh, chapter tell me a little bit about them tell our listeners some about Maximilian and Mary oh oh don't get me started <laughs> Alan it's it's you know each one of us dreams to be a knight that rides out on a horse to save the princess from the dragon and bring her home. And Maximilian did exactly that. Um, Maximilian was the son of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Frederick III, who lived south of Vienna, was um, constantly short on cash. Um, and, uh, and in order to get the dukedom of Burgundy into the fold of the Habsburg family, um, he organized an ambitious engagement between the only daughter of the Duke of Burgundy, Charles the Bold, and, um, and his own son, Maximilian. Of course, they had ne never met. Maximilian was in Austria and she was in Burgundy, which is between Germany and France. Very, very, very rich dukedom. She, is, she was incredibly handsome, incredibly cultivated. Um, and the dream princess that you can imagine and he was strong uh, bright artistically inclined friend of albrecht durer a, a great guy and he was very courageous and he fought nightly tournaments at the time where this was already outdated and over so he was a dreamer he was a real dreamer and and then the unthinkable happened and charles the bold was killed in a in a skirmish with the swiss and they found his body only three days later uh, when the wolves had already begun eating it. A very nice detail. And suddenly there was this young girl of 19, I think she was, alone in Burgundy, the, heir, the heiress, and the French king, the dragon, put his armies in motion to take Burgundy, which they always wanted, and wanted to force marry him to his 13-year-old son, the Dauphin. And she wrote a letter. She had been writing letters to and fro with Maximilian, very courtly and gentle letters. So she wrote him a letter, come and get me with your army, save me, save me my, my, uh, my fiance. Uh, he had no army. He had a few friends, some arms, a horse, uh, um, an armor, and a, a few soldiers, but nothing else, and no money mostly. So he rode off from Austria and he rode along the Danube. And along the way, knowing of course that he was the son of the emperor and one day might be the emperor himself, very probably, people began joining his army and princes added themselves, dukes, bishops. Then at some point he had no more money. Then he, um, uh, the mother of Maria of Burgundy sent him some money and then he made it to Ghent in Burgundy with a huge army in shining armor. And um, the description is that when he, they saw each other the first time in the evening and the evening sun shone on his armor, he looked like an angel that had descended from heaven. And they were married the next morning in church and just before the French arrived. And then he lived in Burgundy for a few years 
trying to take possession of this very complicated new lands. And they loved each other very, very, very much, very much. They read novels together, like, you know, like we watch um, the romantic TV series today. They, they read novels together. Their first common language was Latin because um, they couldn't speak each other's languages. They wrote out on hunting, composed music, and um, it was a real dream marriage. The most important thing, though, that she was, she was, she had two very important children. And of these two very important children, all other Habsburgs that live now descended from. And then she died in a hunting accident. And Maximilian didn't marry again for decades because he was so heartbroken. That was um, the story of uh, Maximilian and Marie of Burgundy. Well, it, it's a tremendous story. And of course, the, the book has all kinds of stories like that. But one of the things that stood out to me uh, other than the, of course, their their marriage connection and the, his his devotion to her, was that the, I guess from a from a political standpoint, the Habsburgs were constantly throughout these hundreds of years, uh, they were, I guess, their their power was was very often kind of a close run thing. It wasn't that Always. they were <laughs> that they were. Uh, automatically deferred to, as we might imagine, but it was it was through a persistence and uh, seemingly at times providentially that yes. they were uh, that they were making uh, decisions and taking actions, and sometimes were at low points uh, that and, and all seemed lost. But you're absolutely you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, it was a mixture of dashing, of gambling. There was a bit of gambling in it. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Um, up to 1470, more or less, the Habsburgs basically only existed in Austria. And uh, Frederick III had ambitions that Austria would rule the entire world. But in 14, 1460 or so, nothing of that kind existed. And then within very few years, in the lifetime of Maximilian, they went from Austria and Bohemia and Hungary to that, plus Burgundy, plus Spain, plus the entire world, in the lifetime of Maximilian, by marriage, entirely by marriage. But these marriages were always gambled because as people died easily in the 16th century, you never knew whether the heir to an empire that you married your daughter off to would die, or your daughter would die, or your son would die. And depending on who died, the other inherited his possessions. And uh, Maximilian did two gambles of that kind, and suddenly the Habsburgs exploded onto the world stage. Um, within very few years, and suddenly had a huge empire. Um, but it didn't do it by taking an army and and uh, and taking countries. But it did it by marriage, and uh, by by yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, it must have been God, of course, because um, you couldn't explain it otherwise. Um, but the Habsburgs were in a few situations where little there was just a little that that uh, there was missing, and it would have been over for us. It would have been so totally over after the um, after the Spanish line died out. Uh, for a few years after, around the year 1700, 
it looked really dire for the Habsburgs. Um, the Spanish line had died out, also due to the so-called inbreeding and close marrying, probably to the genetical um, diseases because of that. Um, and in the in the Austrian Habsburg line, you only had two boys left, and one of them uh, was supposed to become emperor, and then he died, and then there was one left, and this one was Charles VI, and he only had two daughters, and for the first ten years, no child with his wife. Now, as we are not Henry VIII, we couldn't just throw out a wife and marry the next one. So you had to, you had to do with the one you had. So it was like a a huge complicated um, roulette game, and uh, and then of course, as he then only had one daughter left, Maria Theresia, he just took his fate in his hands. He went to all the rulers of Europe and he made a deal with them and said, "Listen, we don't want the Habsburgs to die out. Nobody wants that." uh allow allow her to continue the family and i said yeah okay but she has to add the name of her husband at the end of the name that's why we're called habsburg lothringen today because she married franz von lothringen and then of course if she wouldn't have had children that would have been totally the end but she had 16 children so you can never tell <laughs> right i mean i it, it's 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 an interesting, I think, allegory for our own situation uh, where civilization maybe looks a little dire, right? The, the, the West isn't at a high point, but uh, sometimes there can be providential turnings uh, that we don't expect that, uh, it's, that seemingly come out of nowhere to, uh, to rescue us because we're not always great at rescuing ourselves. Yes, like a, a famous Bavarian comic said, predictions are always difficult, especially if they are about the future. Um, <laughs> so a few times in the Habsburg history, there were very unexpected um, twists and turns. For me, a, a moment where I understood the greatness of my family history it was when I stood in the castle of Tratzberg in Austria. It's... Um, and in that castle, there is a hall called the Habsburger Saal. There is a YouTube video on my channel where I explain that hall. It's a hall that the owners of that castle painted for the same such Emperor Maximilian, because he was a friend of theirs that often came hunting. And it's a hall where you have the entire family tree of the Habsburgs painted around the walls of that room. And it's gigantic, and there are branches everywhere, and there's portraits of all the Habsburgs that had lived beginning with Rudolf in 1273. And it ends on the other side of the wall when you get back to the entrance door. And there you have the outlines of the children, of Maximilian's children, the future Charles V, whom one still didn't know what, who he's going to be. So it was just an outline. And it's a, it's a majestic thing. But if I would have gone to Maximilian in 1500 and told him, your family will still be around in 500 years. Your family will still rule in 400 years. He wouldn't have believed it. He was proud on these, on these first centuries of the family. He had no idea what was going to come after that. So we don't have any idea what is the future of the Habsburg family. Right now it doesn't look like monarchy, neither in Austria nor in Hungary. But the crowns are still there. And we always say... 
history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Monarchy is not a very, a very negative form of government. Some of the best countries in Europe are monarchies. Half of the world has watched uh, Queen Elizabeth's funeral. A billion of people. And um, who knows what's coming along. And if ever monarchy comes along again, the Habsburgs are here. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Uh, one of the one of the uh, the the mottos that uh, the Habsburgs have that you talk about in your uh, in your chapter on on marriage is and and I, I will give the translation. Others may lead wars. You happy Austria get married. So uh, that that was uh, that was advice that the Habsburgs certainly followed. Bella gerant alii tu Felix Austria nube. Yes. They follow that. And that's a very early one. That's from the 15th century, because from the first, from the first Habsburg ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, um, uh, Rudolf, in 1273, the Habsburgs practiced marriage politics. Now, why did they do that? It was mostly because, as rulers of the Holy Roman Empire, from the beginning, they were ruling over an incredibly complex entity. It was a mixture of different countries, dukedoms, different sets of law, different languages, different people, different nationalities. And your job as an emperor was to justly treat all of them like a supreme judge, keep wars between them at the minimum, and do this incredibly complex balancing game between all these people. This is not a job you can do by violence. This is a job you can only do by diplomacy. And the best diplomacy to get countries together is um, to marry to marry your children to each other because this, this creates alliances. I give you an example. Rudolf in 1273, when he became emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, he had to repair the damage of the 25 years of interregnum interregnum was a, a time when there was no emperor for 25 years there was chaos in in the lands of the holy roman empire and some of the local rulers had appropriated territories that belonged to the empire and not to them one of them being ottokar of bohemia he had taken large parts of austria that didn't belong to him and rudolf tried to get him to give this back by diplomacy, by fighting, and then he tried to offer his children in marriage for him in order to give back. Didn't work out, and in the end, he had to beat him in the last big knightly battle of the Middle Ages of Dürnkrut, and he took he took the day. So, marriage politics is something that, of course, is totally alien now when we believe that marrying of your children is something you do with child um, brides in the arab world and um but it was normal all over the world for centuries for millennia i think and in the habsburg family it meant that you at least in the 16th 17th century didn't have much of a choice of whom you were going to marry but you submitted to your parents they would decide that you had to marry the dauphin of france and then you tried to make the best of it if the other person was Catholic too, you could be pretty certain that you would have a more or less good marriage. You had the same set of values. 
and the Habsburgs mostly married Catholics. So what I'm trying to say, you got a bad hand of cards dealt if you grow up as an archduchess in the 16th century, from a today's point of view. But many of these marriages were actually quite happy. Well, uh, and I think that we we can look back, and even in parts of the world today, where where a lot of marriages are at least partially arranged, divorce rates are actually lower than they are uh, where people just sort of go off and have a Tinder account or whatever, um, and uh, and and find somebody online. There there are uh, there there's wisdom to some of that um, that uh, perhaps we. In this, we might develop some sort of uh, some sort of mixed approach that might be helpful. That I don't, uh, but we don't know what the future holds. But uh, but certainly the advice to get married and uh, and have children is sound is sound advice. One other one other of my points that um, is very important, I think, is stand for law and justice and your subjects. I make a very strong point. I have a feeling nowadays that many people feel disappointed by their politicians. Many people can't really imagine their politicians standing up for their people, for their for the citizens in their country. Many of us have the image of a politician who works as a politician and serves his country, but at a certain point jumps out and goes into business, earns lots of money with all the good connections he got as a politician. And this seems to be, in many places, reality and normality. And uh, the counter model, of course, is the monarch, because the monarch, first of all, will not quit, will not quit and will not go into a cozy life, but will have to live through all the years that he or she is monarch. And uh, the difference between our politicians today and the monarchs of the past, but also of today, I, I speak in my book about I happen to know quite a few of the current kings and queens uh, of Europe because I got to know them when they were still princes and I saw the way they were raised, their education, I got a bit of that. And um, you get raised to serve. You spend your childhood serving. You, If you look at the images of William and Kate and their children standing there waving during parades, being generous and greeting people who greet them, you are raised to serve. You are also raised to know all the fault lines in your country, to know all the problematic topics, to get to know all the key players, the parties, the church, the population, the parts of the country. And all of this always under the aspect of serving. Uh, for instance, the King of Belgium cannot use one of the two languages of his country more often. He has to equally balance between the two all his life. Uh, if he's an enthusiastic Catholic, he will have to be careful in order not to um, too strongly show interest in one kind of spirituality in order not... So this is, this is this complicated balancing game of serving. And of course, the king has the advantage as he never has to say, can I say that? Or will this mean that I won't be reelected in four years? Um, he has the advantage of knowing I will remain, if, if there's a bar, the possibility of a revolution, he will remain in position. And your son or your daughter will have to live with the consequences of what you do. Your son and your daughter uh, will have to carry the, the problems you create. So you think twice, and you really try to see how did your parents solve this, how did your grandparents solve it. It's a very different set um, of 
of parameters, of parameters, sorry, of parameters. But um, there is something to be said. And I think that's why the Habsburgs and characters like Blessed Emperor Karl are immensely popular in today's world, even among young people, because they see an engagement and a spirit of serving that they don't find very often in nowadays political world. Yes, it, it's certainly, and we're seeing this, um, I think, become more exacerbated in the past, well, uh, at least 50 years, where in, in Western democracies that, that we're seeing more exploitation of the system by politicians, that there there is this, um, and this isn't a, a partisan observation, it's, it's just simply politicians who see uh, office as a way to advance their own personal interests, particularly financial interests, either while in office or, as you point out, after office. I mean, we, we, we certainly see it uh, in the United States. We've, we, it's, it's just simply the, the way things are done. And uh, it, it's hard to see how, how, we can, uh, how we can get away from that just because the system um really rewards it <clears throat> essentially yes i i can come with a quote here when um roosevelt visited emperor franz joseph of austria in the beginning of the 20th century he made a tour in europe and he visited the old emperor in schönbrunn and uh, he talked to him for 38 minutes we know this um and and among that conversation was a famous moment where Franz Joseph, uh, where the, the former American president, a bit pointedly, provocatively said, more or less like, now that we have parliaments and, and parties and politicians and prime ministers, what exactly is your job as an emperor? You know? And Franz Joseph answered, uh, my job is to protect my people from their politicians. <laughs> and. Uh, <clears throat> And I ask who protects us from our politicians. Um, that, is, that is a problem. Um, that is a problem. And I think many people feel that something is wrong, something is off. Um, and the good thing about the monarch is that um, this is somebody who is above all of this. And it can't just be a president. A, you know, a president is often from a political party too, has his connection, also has to think about his future. Um, a monarch is on a totally different standing. But all of this, of course, are alien sounds to a continent where uh, you are built on the fight against tyranny and monarchs. America is, but America is surprisingly similar in a few central ideas to what the Habsburg Empire lived. For instance, uh, my point three, believe, believe in the empire and in subsidiarity. Um, America is built on subsidiarity. America is built from the grassroots up. America is built from the from the from the homestead, from the township. Uh, the state is nearly the highest level that originally existed. And then you had, of course, you had the Federation, you had the, the United States. But centralistic forces were always there. But in reality, America is a lot of states with a lot of sovereign powers. And the same is what we see in the EU now. We see uh, a European Union that should um, respect the single countries, but has a tendency 
to be strongly centralistic, to make decisions in Brussels and to sometimes sort of step on the feet of the small countries like Central European countries. And what is even worse is to try to mix into their local politics. And the key principle of subsidiarity tells you that the lower level should do what the lower level can do best. The higher level should do what the higher level does best. And the higher you come up, the less, the less power there should be. Ideally, you should have the power on the lower levels and the concrete power on the lower levels. And the Habsburg monarchy worked like that. The, the Habsburg monarchy tried to take into consideration the interests of the Hungarians, of the other peoples. They tried in their parliaments to have all the languages present, even if that meant that sessions took far longer. But you wanted to respect all the single lower levels. And whenever the Habsburgs tried to, to pull everything to a central power and decide everything from the central place, and, and you know, uh, running over local habits and local powers, it went wrong. Uh, Joseph II is one example. Franz Joseph in the first 10 years of his reign is another example. And uh, yeah, so what I think is America um, has a similar idea of subsidiarity, a similar idea uh, of respect for the freedom of, um, of the single states and, and nations in Europe. Uh, yes. Well, certainly, America America was built on that. We're we're struggling with the with our own Brussels that we call Washington D.C. Uh, yes. because uh, central powers like to centralize power, right? And they they always uh, you you always have that that tug back and forth. But that's not that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. You actually want that that push and pull between those powers to uh, to peacefully promote competition. You don't want uh, any any sort of uh, hostility to break out, but you want to have uh, you want to have people uh, in different roles jealous of their prerogatives, right? And and this is something I think that we're seeing in a partisan atmosphere in the United States, uh, where people become more loyal to party rather than to the the role of uh, to their to their government. Uh, obligations where a governor or a legislator may be more more loyal to 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 uh, somebody in a different branch of their own party than there are to to what their role is. And when you have those sorts of things, you again you start seeing you start seeing breakdowns where uh, where there's a, a lack of vision of the service. I think that you're talking about and and obligation to to localities, which uh, which ultimately is uh, kind of keeps everybody in line, I think. You see, Alan, I believe that um, man is built locally. We are built for family, for uh, for a region maximum. Uh, democracy also works best locally. Uh, I'm a bit worried if decisions are being taken on a level that so far removed from democratic legitimization. Um, that normal people have the feeling that the politicians they elect aren't even the ones deciding anymore. Um, some people in the last two or three years sometimes had the feeling that that their elected uh, politicians are not the ones calling the shots, that things are being decided by institutions that have not been elected and that um, that work on a global level. And uh, And the antidote to that is subsidiarity is the respect for the lower level, is the respect for the local level. And um, this is something that we, we, we look to the United States as a place where this is still 
part of the matrix, so to speak. Well, I, I think that it. I think that it is there. It's it's innate to it. Uh, we just have to, like with the family. These are institutions that we have an obligation to reinforce and uh, and and try to promote with with our own actions and lives. I think and sort of the, these principles that you are uh, elucidating in your book help with that. Yes. So yeah, another thing that I talk a lot about is dying. Um, that's the last, the last of my seven points. Die well. Uh, we live, we live in a time where death only comes violently in accidents, in terroristic attacks, um, or somewhere hidden away in hospitals. Um, but uh, but when Habsburg um, rulers died, it was a very public affair. They knew that an entire nation was watching and seeing how they would face death. And um, as they were Catholic, their entire life was preparation for that moment. Uh, they, they learned to pray all their life in order to be able to pray when they came to their deathbed. Um, and also they were painfully aware that as political rulers, as political leaders, uh, they had to one day um, render account of what they did to God because they believed that they would be judged also as an emperor. Um, how many politicians do we have? I think in the States you have a few, but uh, in Europe I'm not that certain. Do you have that see themselves uh, accountable to God and know that in their final judgment they will be asked, how have you, how have you done your job as, as a politician? Have you looked after the people? Have you been a champion of the weak, of the poor? Um, that was what the Habsburgs were painfully aware of. So they tried to prepare for death, and um, and they lived their death and their burial, the funerals, very, very consciously. Um, it, it seems to me that, as you've touched on there, that that you it's it's difficult to separate those ideas of obligation from ideas of faith and of course be catholic or be faithful in some be in some faith tradition but the habsburgs were catholics and were uh very much conscious of that i mean the, the habsburgs have produced uh what is certain to be a saint which isn't something that that we see uh that we see too often uh t tell us tell us a little bit uh maybe going back and and i've jotted down the story of, of going all the way back to rudolph with his with his uh, uh, crossing or offering his horse to cross the cross yes. the water, yes, a, a very touching story. Yes, uh, Rudolf was he was a fierce warrior, and when he had a problem also with the bishop, he might simply take his small army and and lay siege to the bishop's city, you know, to solve a conflict. But at the same time, he was really devout. For instance, he gave his his wife a Benedictine monastery. Um, in Muri in Switzerland with a, with, a, with a crypt and she is still buried there and, uh, and many of my ancestors. But most of all he's famous for that one story that I, I truly believe it's, it's exactly as it happened, it's true. Um, is, uh, when when he, was, he was riding out for a hunt in the forests in Switzerland and, uh, and he comes to a, a river that's swollen by, uh, because it's you know the water is very high and there's a priest with the viaticum with the blessed sacrament that he wants to bring to a dying man but he can't cross the river because the water's so high so rudolf steps from his horse 
and gives it to the man and says, uh, please take my horse and ride to the dying man. And when the priest afterwards returned and found Rudolf again and wanted to give the horse back, Rudolf famously said, um, far be it from me to ride on a horse that has carried my redeemer. And um, I often think of this story when uh, once or twice I've brought priests with my car uh, to bring the viatic to a dying person. I did this during the during the brutal, fierce, and absolute lockdown here in Rome, when it was not allowed to drive in cars because of the virus, and um, and I drove priests to bring the viatic in difficult times. And I thought, uh, does my does my ancestor look down to me? But I, of course, never gave the car away afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and and people said. The, the simple people in Switzerland at his time said this this gesture is going to be is going to have good consequences. This is going to be a good a good rule, and the family is going to be uh, covered in graces for this. And we have been covered with graces over the centuries, ending in, you know, the last Habsburg emperor, uh, Blessed Karl, outside of Catholic circles, he is totally unknown for most people. They only know Franz Joseph, who ruled for nearly 70 years. And then suddenly, in 1916, in the middle of the First World War, Franz Joseph dies, which was unthinkable, of a cold. And this young, friendly family father takes over for one and a half years, loses the empire, loses the war, tries to come back twice in Hungary, and this doesn't work out. And then he dies of a, of a cold in Madeira under very, very painful circumstances. So in the eyes of the world, he's a total loser. He is nothing compared to the Habsburg ancestors of his. But if you go on Twitter right now and you look at the Habsburg championship that I'm doing on Twitter, where people can poll for their favorite Habsburg, I've been doing this since a few weeks now, and we are really in the last, we're in the semi-finals now. There's very few male and female Habsburgs left. Blessed Carol made it to the last few, and from the from the from the votes that I see now, I'm pretty certain he's going to go to the finals, and he's probably going to win um, the Habsburg Championship. This mild-spoken, friendly, gentle family father, who lost everything. So why is that? Why is that? Because um, because he's in the United States, people love Blessed Emperor Carl. I've been to to Texas and near Dallas. I gave a talk about um, Blessed Carl. There were 700 people in the conference hall. Nearly all of them were young. Many children. They all wanted to learn about Blessed Carl, and they they wanted to. They, afterwards, they asked me, "How do I? How can I live like him?" You know, this is this is the loser. So something he must have done something right. And I have this WhatsApp group, as I told you, the Habsburgs have a WhatsApp group where we meet every every day. Most, not all of us, but many of us. And I, I asked the, the younger generation, why? What's your favorite Habsburg? And they all said, "Blessed Carol." And I asked why. And one of my nieces wrote back, said, "Because he did the three things that he could do right. He did right. He did the right thing in his marriage. He was a perfect husband and father." He did the right thing in his faith. He really aspired to a saintly Christian life. And he did the right thing in his job, which happened to be emperor. He tried to be a good emperor, a faithful emperor who fought for peace from the first moment 
that he came on the throne because he strongly believed in peace. Um, so all of these are things that every one of us can do. Um, you don't have to be an emperor and wear a crown to do what Blessed Carol has done. Every one of us in his family life and his, in his job can do this. And therefore I think and I understand why he's so popular in the States. Well, ultimately, uh, and of course, uh, as you illustrated so well there, it's not, uh, it's not what the worldly success uh, turns out to be, but it's how we react to the circumstances that we're given and what, what, uh, what principles we're going to live out. Yes, exactly. Is you, you take the cards you get dealt and you try to play it the best you can in a very secular way. Well, Ambassador, I very much appreciate you being on. This is uh, the new book, The Habsburg Way, um, which is also pictured behind you. And uh, it comes out uh, in mid-April, 18th, April 18th, I believe, yes, uh, yes. which will be around the time that this, uh, that this podcast is released. And so we encourage everyone to, uh, to, to find the book and to order it. And it is from uh, the so Sophia Institute, I believe. Uh, yes. Sophia Institute Press. And so we encourage people to to find that. And uh, are you going to are you going to travel to uh, to America for a book tour? Are indeed, to indeed I am. Indeed I am going to be in the states in the first week of May. Going to be in Philadelphia, Washington D.C., and possibly Nashville. And I'm going to do some readings. So you might just meet me. And if you want to meet me differently, you can come to my Twitter account. I still have just so much followers that i can still interact react right back i usually always write back if you if you behave civilly and uh and i i try to deliver a mixture of um hungary topics faith topics habsburg topics family topics and the odd monster movie thrown in to keep the mix um interesting that's, that's right and we, we didn't even get a chance to talk about your uh, your interest in movies and your and your book on james bond which i'm very curious to to track down and see but uh but we'll have to save that for another time i suppose <laughs> <laughs> wonderful thank you very much alan and thank you for what you're doing for culture and for for dialogue on twitter too you're a very positive account there uh, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, seeing you on there, and I appreciate very much seeing you on here. I, I am, uh, I'm very glad to have you on. Thank you very much, and uh, looking forward, hopefully, to meeting you one day in the States or elsewhere.